This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One of the big questions is, what is money? For practical purposes, it exists in a series of heterogeneous databases, very different databases. Do you believe in crypto? Digital currency may be an answer. But it is the highly speculative asset. I do own Bitcoin. There is no second best. Welcome to the Crypto Curious Podcast, proudly brought to you by the Bamboo app. Crypto Curious is your go-to source for all things cryptocurrency. Whether you're a seasoned pro or new to the world of crypto, we've got you covered. Each week, we'll break down the top news stories of the past seven days, giving you the information you need to stay on top of the latest trends and developments. Plus, we'll share quick bites of news and insights that you won't want to miss. If you're new to the world of crypto, we recommend starting with our early episodes as we break down the basics and give you a solid foundation to understand the crypto world. Join us as we explore the ever-evolving world of cryptocurrency and educate ourselves along the way. This week is a bit different though. We've got a very special episode, which is the full keynote interview with Bitcoin bull Michael Saylor from the recent Oz CryptoCon event in Melbourne. That's right. Trace was lucky enough to get the gig to interview Michael Saylor, who's one of the biggest proponents of, of digital assets in our sector. And I was there in the auditorium packed with about 1,500 people. And I think there are about 200 or maybe even more, 300 people outside trying to get in the room just to listen to the talk. I don't get the call up for these things anymore. Trace is way too charming. <laughs> <laughs> but I was happy I was happy to sit in the crowd and watch the talk and, uh, and yeah. Yeah, look, that's enough of us talking about it. Have a listen, folks. Here he is, Michael Saylor. A well-known American entrepreneur, the executive chairman and co-founder of MicroStrategy, a published author, an esteemed speaker, and what I would say is the biggest Bitcoin bull in our ecosystem, Mr. Michael Saylor. Put your hands together. (laughs) Hello, Michael. Thank you for being here. Nice to be with you, Tracy. Thanks for having me. Sorry I can't be there in person, but I'm there in spirit. And looking forward to our, our, our discussion. Yep. Well, I'll start off by saying congratulations. You're finally in the green. <laughs> like many of us here, it has been uh, what seems like a very long crypto winter, but uh, it's been a great few weeks. And look, for those uh, who have dollar-costed averaged into the market over this, uh, you know, this winter, we finally are in the green. And what we want to know from you is, you've done very well, you're finally in the green, Do you, uh, will you continue to buy Bitcoin or will you just hold your current position? You can never have enough Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> I, I think the right way to think of this is Bitcoin is going to grow in a serpentine pattern with, with uh, rapid burst of growth, some drawdown, but on an exponential curve, right now it's uh, 
like 45 or 50% compounded annual growth for the past three and a half years since we got involved. And I think it'll just continue to grow at a high growth rate between 20 and 40 or 20 and 50% for the next one to two decades. And it'll gradually, uh, the overall long-term growth will probably go from 45% annual to 40 to 35 to 30 to 25 to 20. And it'll hit a terminal growth rate of like 15%. And when it hits that terminal growth rate, maybe 20 years out, maybe 25 years out, it'll be growing twice as fast or compounding twice as fast as the S&P index or any other diversified high quality portfolio of assets you could buy. So if you think about it like that, you just say, well, we, uh, we're, where we are now, we're gonna double, we're gonna double again, we're gonna double again, we're gonna double again. Bitcoin's gonna continue to progress to a million dollars a coin $2 million a coin, $5 million a coin, $10 million a coin. And when it's $6 million a coin, there's gonna be a bunch of people really angry at themselves that they didn't buy it at a million dollars a coin. And so I think, um, I, I think once you understand it uh, to be the center of the financial universe, right? It's, it's basically the fulcrum around which we all generate leverage it is, it is the frame of reference of all value and scarcity. Once you get that idea, then the logical thing to do is just to continue to sweep your cash flows into it from month to month to quarter to quarter to year to year. You could call that dollar cost averaging, or you could just call it, uh, you know, savings. But, um, you know, there's no end in sight. I mean. If I told you you could buy Bitcoin at 100,000 and it was going to go to 6 million and you were gonna get 60X your money, then wh why wouldn't you? Is that financial advice? <laughs> I am an advocate of Bitcoin. Look, we'll move on to the next question. And there's an auditorium here of maybe 15, hundred people, and some of those, I would assume, are, are big followers of yours and probably watched all your YouTube videos like I have, but I really want to talk to you about your Bitcoin and property analogy, and there's probably some new people here who haven't heard you talk about this, so I'm going to go down this path, and I, I love listening to you do this. So you've stated that Bitcoin is the best property in the world. Can you elaborate on that, and what makes Bitcoin the superior asset compared to traditional forms of property, and how this perspective has influenced uh, MicroStrategy's investment in Bitcoin? Sure. Well, you know, when you think about investments that you're going to hold a long period of time, um, the two that stick out are, should I buy... Um, a diversified portfolio of companies like the S&P index, or should I buy a bunch of real estate? And if you buy uh, real estate, like real estate in Miami Beach went from $10,000 an acre to $10 million an acre in uh, less than 100 years. So that works out to be a seven to 8% growth rate per year, every year for 100 years. And if you have that perfect portfolio of stocks and they're very competitive, then you might get something similar. But when you look at it, stock, investing in stocks is very complicated. Like name a company that'll still be here in 100 years. Like uh, how do you establish the S&P index? So 
so if you take a three-generation or a multi-generational view, it's kind of hard to figure out how I would buy a bunch of companies and hold them 100 years. But on the other hand, holding property for 100 years is very straightforward. Um, you know, the royal family of, of uh, Japan or the royal family in the UK or royal families in the Middle East, they just buy up all the best property and keep it for hundreds of years, right? How long has the British royal family had the center of London? 500 years, 1,000 years, right? The emperors had the center of Tokyo, 1,000 years. So holding uh, the middle of Manhattan or holding, if I could basically, yeah, you remember, I, I walked through the botan botanical gardens in Sydney and I thought it's the most beautiful thing. What if you could own it? Like, like what if you could own that entire garden? I don't know, what is it, 50 acres? It's spectacular. Would you ever sell it? Probably not. You could probably, uh, you know, afford, you to, probably, you could probably afford to buy it now. Yeah, but you know, like 500 years ago, right? Someone came along and it was there. And, uh, and so now property is a good investment. And the reason, the reason property goes up by a factor of a thousand is because if you look at it, what you realize is politicians can't make more of it. You can't print more property. The, the garden is the garden. The Sydney Harbor is the Sydney Harbor. You're not going to wake up and find out that there's a hundred X as much beachfront property as there used to be. So when the money supply expands by a factor of 100 and the, the number of acres on the beach in Miami Beach stays the same, the price per acre goes up by 100. And that's why property is a good investment. Uh, the problem with property is um, you have to buy it in chunks of buildings at a time or acres at a time. And sometimes the best property isn't available for sale. The second problem is there's property tax. So if you owned all the property in the middle of Sydney, you're gonna get taxed on it by the mayor and by the province and by the country. And a lot of times people can't afford to pay the property tax for 100 years. And then uh, if someone zones your property or if there's a war, what if you owned the nicest property in the middle of a war zone? What if you owned all of the nicest property in, in Ukraine, in Kiev, right? It might be devalued by the war. It could be devalued by a pandemic, by an earthquake, by a tsunami, uh, by a tax. And you know, if, if I handed you $10 million and you lived in Africa and you had a choice, buy $10 million worth of property in Zimbabwe, anything in Zimbabwe for $10 million, you could pick anything you want in the entire country and buy it for $10 million or would you rather buy Bitcoin, $10 million worth of it? Well, the, you know, the property in Zimbabwe, maybe it's scarce, but it could be impaired and it's not mobile. And maybe you don't want to live there. And maybe the people with the money in 100 years don't want to move there. So it's, kind of, it's not clear that you'll be able to mortgage it or rent it or sell it or carry it with you. But on the other hand, Bitcoin is capped. Uh, Bitcoin is like Manhattan in cyberspace. It's 21 million city blocks in a cyber Manhattan, and one day 8 billion people will want to live there because everybody in the world, all 8 billion people in the world want to be wealthy. They all want to keep their money. There's no one that doesn't want social security and economic well-being, not, not from now to the end of eternity. For a thousand years, people are going to want the money. So if I created the most stable, most secure, most immutable crypto asset network of 21 million blocks and everybody in the world understood it, 
they're all gonna want a piece of it. There's only, one, there's only 21 million blocks, and a lot of it's been lost, you know, so probably we're down to 16 or 17 million Bitcoin. And the thing about Bitcoin, which is better than property, is A, it's scarce, but B, it keeps getting more scarce. When people lose their keys, mm. there's less Bitcoin, you know, not more. And, and it's mobile and it's portable and it's fungible. And it, uh, it passes what I call the Bernard Arnault test, which is if you, if you want to make a good investment, you should buy something scarce and desirable that someone richer than you and more cultured than you and smarter than you will want to buy from you in a decade. And, uh, and that's what I think of when I think of Bernard Arnault, someone richer than me and more cultured than me. And I wonder, would he want to buy this thing? And clearly $10 million worth of hotel space in Zimbabwe probably may not be that appealing. And you never know with real estate whether the person you want to sell it to is going to want to buy it. And of course, people can make more real estate. They certainly can, you know, not all land is, is scarce. I mean, the beachfront property is, but farmland in Kansas isn't. There's plenty of land in the middle of Australia that isn't nearly as desirable as the Botanic Gardens in Sydney Harbor. So you got to choose your real estate very carefully and you can't move it. And if I can't come to your country, I don't want it. But Bitcoin is scarce, it's desirable, it's a global thing, everybody understands it, and I can move it. I, I can have a billion dollar building in Manhattan, it won't move, but I can have a billion dollar Bitcoin building and I can send it to Singapore or I can even get a bank in Singapore to loan me money against it or maybe want to custody it or maybe want to borrow it at some point, or I can find, you know, I can find a wealthy individual in any city in the world that will want to buy it from me. And you can't say the same uh, for a piece of property in a certain place. So I see Bitcoin as digital property. It has all the great attributes of trophy real estate, but it doesn't have the liabilities and the risks of, of real estate because it has no physical nexus. It's immutable, immortal, indestructible, and global. And common sense says, if there's a hundred billionaires and they're all bidding for your thing, the price is going up. Whereas if there's only one billionaire, you know, that would want that thing, then they will feel like they have you over a barrel and they can give you a low ball bid because there's no other buyer. And so if you're gonna own a trophy asset, you wanna own something which has global appeal and you wanna be able to take it with you or move it if necessary in order to make sure the value is not impaired. That's why I think of Bitcoin as the apex property of the human race. Thanks for that explanation. Maybe if we can get the abridged version, I need to explain that to my dad who's a cattle farmer in uh, rural WA. He's finding it hard to get his head around that. So <laughs> thank you for that. Look, let's change tact a little bit. I'm gonna go to uh, smart contracts and ordinals because there's been a lot of advancements there. And do you believe that this was really in line with Satoshi's core views? And how do you envisage this uh, change and use case and the volatility and security of Bitcoin. Do you see this as an issue? Yeah, I think Bitcoin is a protocol and I think it's a good protocol and, um, and it's an asset and I believe anybody should be able to buy the asset and anybody should be able to use the protocol. Um, 
I reserve my criticism and skepticism for people that wish to change the protocol. And so I'm very conservative with regard to that. Um, when I look at Bitcoin, I say, well, Bitcoin is the greatest monetary network in the world, but it's the greatest monetary network because it is the most trustworthy, indestructible, immutable uh, database with the greatest integrity. And it has the greatest integrity because it's a decentralized network and it's running on millions and millions of computers. And there's, I mean, we could go into why it is, uh, you know, the most immutable network, but I think we all understand it is. Um, when I send you a million dollars of Bitcoin, I'm sending a message from me to you. You wouldn't want it to be hacked or blocked by um, an enemy of yours or a hostile nation state. And, uh, and uh, it's a pretty important message. But um, the real beauty of Bitcoin is I can, I can put any message on, the, on that blockchain or on the Bitcoin network and know that it will be there in 100 years. And I can send a message even in the middle of a war, a war time through a war zone and I can expect it will make it to its destination. Um, that's what it means to be a fault tolerant, mission critical, indestructible, immutable, immutable database that's truly decentralized. So. I think that with regard to, um, uh, to ordinals, it's an interesting application. Um, and I actually support all the likely applications of Bitcoin. I think that people will, they will burn identities, decentralized identities on Bitcoin. And there's no reason why I wouldn't put, you know, my identity, burn it on the, on the Bitcoin base layer as an orange check, and then start to digitally sign documents and encrypt documents using that public key, private key combination. And I think you can also timestamp documents. So there's no reason why, why Bitcoin can't emerge as the, as the ultimate cyber notary. If, uh, if I have a will that's conveying a billion dollars, then maybe I'd wanna hash the will, timestamp the, the will, burn it on the blockchain uh, such that nobody can tamper with the will. I think that burning the entire document on the blockchain is another possibility. Look, if it's, if, if it's worthwhile to, to put the information to convey a billion dollars from point A to point B, it might be worthwhile to put a document that conveys a billion dollars as well, or, or any kind of uh, government document or official one. Um, if my choice is to put the data onto a proprietary database owned by a company, or owned by a government. In a hundred years, it's not clear what company will be here. It's not clear what government will be here. Certainly in two or 300 years, almost all governments will be, will be uh, you know, evolved to something different and all companies will, will have morphed into something different, will be gone. Uh, burn, uh, books may very well be gone, documents, physical things will be gone. So if you want something to last for a long period of time, you're gonna wanna put it on the blockchain. Now, I don't, I don't know which applications will work. I'm sure, I'm sure the application of sending money will work and storing money will work. And, that's, and that finances everything else. But you know, authentication, verification, digital signature, digital art, digital you know, notary applications, national security applications, cybersecurity applications. 
financial security applications, all these things are, are going to explode. People are going to develop them. Some are going to fail. Some are going to succeed. Most will fail. But ultimately, what is it worth to be able to timestamp and notarize a message forever? Like, what's it worth to actually have an immortal document or a mortal timestamp? And what is it worth to have an indestructible piece of information? And what is it worth to send an unstoppable message? I think it's worth a lot. I think, I think if, if the country is at war with another country and you're trying to send a message from point A to point B and someone's trying to hack you, I think it might be worth a billion dollars to send that message. It's certainly worth a billion dollars to send a message conveying a billion dollars from wallet A to wallet B. So I, I think that the block space is undervalued right now. I think that, you know, I mean, on slow time periods, you could do a Bitcoin transaction for a quarter. I think burning something forever for the next 10,000 years and, and, and sending it in an immutable fashion, unstoppable, you know, past every hacker is worth more than a quarter, right? So, so if, um, if we see things like ordinals evolve, I, you know, uh, is there a digital painting that's worth a billion dollars to me? Not to me, right? But uh, is there a digital document that's worth a billion dollars to me? Sure, there is. Okay. So there are applications that are worth a lot of money. And there are applications where I would pay a dollar, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, or ten thousand dollars, or a hundred thousand dollars to transact on, on the Bitcoin network. I mean, heck, if you convey a title in a building, move a hundred million dollar building from person A to person B, you know, and you end up paying hundreds of thousands, you might, you might pay $6 million in brokerage fees or millions of dollars in brokerage fees. You would pay $100,000 in title fees and lawyer fees. So if you're going to move a piece of property, you'll pay the fees. If you're going to store the, the property forever, you probably won't mind it. I think that uh, ordinals are auspicious and interesting, and they're just one of many, many applications. But I, th I think there'll be lots, and I think that someone's going to crack that code, and, we're, and the, the demand for unstoppable, immutable communications, I think, I think that's going to grow, and Bitcoin is going to get a, a lot more interest from technology developers as they figure out how to anchor or anchor cybersecurity, financial security, and other forms of applications into that network. Okay, thanks for that one. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's move on to the hot topic of ETFs. There's been a lot of hype on the Bitcoin ETF. Do you think this is going to be approved uh, and sometime soon? And if so, who will be approved first or will they be approved altogether, which is a, a common theory. You know, I, I mean, I don't have any, any um, 
information that's um, like uh, richer than anything that you would know by reading Twitter, but my opinion is, yes, uh, they'll be approved and a whole batch of them. I don't know if all of them, but I think a batch will all be approved about the same time. Okay. And as a follow-up, do you think this changes appetite um, from investors for something like the MicroStrategy offering? Well, I think, you know, it's a two-part question. I think that the ETF, a spot ETF definitely increases appetites in general because right now, in order to buy Bitcoin, you have to, you have to set up a relationship with a crypto exchange and most institutional investors don't have a crypto exchange relationship and most retail investors don't have one. And most of the time they don't want to add a new one. Uh, it takes 10, 20, 30 years for them to establish these relationships. So when the ETF comes on, you know, you could think of an ETF kind of like, the inter like a website, like an internet address. It's like, does your company have a URL or an internet address? If so, it's easy to find you. If not, it's really hard to find you. I can find a website in Australia in about five seconds with the URL, and it might take me you know, three months to come there and knock on the door. So, so um, ETFs are like, are like the universal protocol of access for financial assets, they're revolutionary. If you don't have the ETFs, it's probably, to say it's 100 times harder to buy would be an understatement. It might be a thousand times harder. And it's not just because of that, but the other, the other catch is, it's not just a thousand times easier to buy Bitcoin via an ETF. It's also free because I can finance the deal. I, if I'm an investor, I could pick up the phone and buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin in about 15 seconds and put up not a dime because the bank, JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley will loan me the money. And, and so you're talking about opening the floodgates to hundreds of trillions of dollars of, of wealth where they can buy it in an instant and they can finance it and they can buy it no money down. And so right now, and after they bought it, they can borrow against it. And you've got to contrast that to the current situation where it takes me a year to set up the account I have to come up with the cash and I can't borrow against it and everybody criticizes me and then I worry about the crypto exchange failing. So, you know, that, that is, uh, that's going to be a big change for the industry. It'll be good for everybody and it's definitely gonna be a big boost for Bitcoin. As for MicroStrategy's position, if you look at the futures ETFs, the reason people don't like futures ETFs is, is by the time you're done with it, they've charged you 10% fee a year. I mean, the cost of rolling the futures is, is not 1% or 2% a year, it's like five or 10 or 20% a year. It's obscenely expensive to cover this with futures. So the spot is gonna be a 50 basis point or 100 basis point or something, but let's say 50 basis points. There's a fee to a spot ETF. And over the course of an infinite duration asset, if I charge you 1% a year, that's like taking 20% of your money. 1% a year over the course of 30 years discounted back with normal interest rates is like your trans, you're, you invest a million and you give me 200,000. That's the cost of 1%. The cost of 50 basis points is 10% of your money over the course of the infinite duration. So these ETFs, they charge a fee and they have no leverage. They're unlevered and they charge a fee of some sort. MicroStrategy doesn't charge a fee 
We don't charge 50 basis points. We don't charge anything. We basically provide that, uh, that acquisition and custody service and cover it with our operating business. So we don't charge a fee. We are levered. We use leverage. So, so we borrowed $2.2 billion at 1.5% interest to buy Bitcoin. If you can borrow $2 billion and pay 1% interest and buy Bitcoin, I would recommend you do it, right? That's a, not a bad idea. You probably would do it. If you, we, charged, we actually borrowed a billion dollars at 0% interest. And so if you could, char if you could borrow a billion dollars at 0% interest and buy Bitcoin, you probably ought to do that too. But if you can't do that, you can invest in MicroStrategy. So what we are is we are a very special Bitcoin investment vehicle. We don't charge a fee. We use intelligent leverage. And we generate a, a tax-deferred Bitcoin uh, dividend of sorts because we're acquiring Bitcoin. We use, we use our cash flows to acquire Bitcoin. We use debt to acquire Bitcoin. And we use equity to acquire Bitcoin. So if you want unlevered and to pay a fee, then use the spot ETFs. And if you want levered and you don't want to pay a fee and you want to get some kind of Bitcoin premium, then you would use MicroStrategy. Now, we're obviously more complicated. We're not for everybody. And our capital structure, it, you couldn't buy $25 billion of MicroStrategy stock on Monday morning. If you did it, it would drive the premiums through the roof. You couldn't squeeze into the asset. But if you're a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East, and you wanted to buy $25 billion of Bitcoin via spot ETF, you could do that and it would trade at parity at the asset value. So, so those ETFs, they meet a particular need and it's important for the industry, we need them, we can't move forward without them. But um, they're not, they're not um, micro strategy, we're a very special purpose entity and we'll stay that way and, and we're not gonna charge a fee, we're gonna continue to use intelligent leverage and we're gonna work to generate that Bitcoin premium. And then of course, some people will just buy the underlying Bitcoin and that's fine too and they'll buy it and, and they'll put it with a custodian and others will buy the Bitcoin and they'll self-custody. And they're all different modes of investing in the asset class. There isn't a right answer, except that there's a right answer for specific investors. If you're, if you're a wealth fund with $100 billion and you're required by charter to trade through a particular bank in a particular way, you can only buy the ETF. And in a decade, you couldn't do anything else. So it's just, you're either gonna get their billions of dollars that way, or you're not gonna get their money. And so everybody's different. Um, I, think, uh, I think the great thing about Bitcoin is the diversity, right? Like I said with the protocol, a thousand different companies can create their own Bitcoin applications and use the protocol, and it's beneficial to all of us. We all benefit. Um, the winners will win, the losers will lose. And a thousand different types of investors can buy Bitcoin, and it's beneficial to everybody. So, so the more diverse the ecosystem, the more applications, the better it is for the security of Bitcoin, the better it is for the asset price of Bitcoin, the better it is for the political uh, support of Bitcoin everywhere in the world. And so I think, I think generally we should welcome all of these different um, financial um, applications. And uh, there's always a tendency to say, well, there's one right one. But you know, the Austrian economics tells you that you don't really know the right answer. All value is subjective. 
there'll be 100,000 businesses, some will succeed, some will fail. Some, I've lived long enough to be able to look back at my life and, and see things I thought were good ideas that didn't turn out well, and to see things that I thought were bad ideas that turned out really well, right? I famously tweeted in 2013 that, you know, Bitcoin's days are numbered and it's going away, and I think Bitcoin was a couple hundred dollars a coin at the time. So, so I've been famously wrong, and I think that the result of having lived long enough and been wrong about things is it gives you humility. And then when you see other people that want to do something with uh, your network and your asset, you welcome them into the space and then you wait and you let the market decide. And the market will sort all this out for us. And, uh, and we're all going to benefit because Bitcoin is really the most pure form of capitalism in the world. It is a market economy with everybody on earth thinking about how they can best contribute to it. And that's one of the things that makes it so special. It's right, it's no gatekeepers, open, permissionless, and every smart person, every entrepreneur is trying to figure out how to make your Bitcoin more valuable. And MicroStrategy will do its part, and the ETFs like BlackRock and Fidelity, they'll do their part. And you know, companies like Fidelity, they're gonna do lots of different things. They're gonna have an ETF. They're also gonna have Fidelity Digital Assets where they actually have uh, Bitcoin custody for high net worth individuals and institutions. But then they've also got a third offering, Fidelity Crypto, which is very different from the first two. So there's lots of different approaches to this and uh, we should welcome all, them all. Thanks for that one. I want to do two more questions, or three if we can get there, but I want to quickly move to Bitcoin mining and securing the network. And with, as someone with uh, 158,000 Bitcoin, how does MicroStrategy view the role of Bitcoin mining in ensuring the network security and transaction validation? And is there any initiatives from MicroStrategy to participate or invest in Bitcoin mining activities? I think Bitcoin mining is really amazing, right? We're up to like 460 exahash now. So the mining, uh, the power of the network just keeps getting greater and greater. It's growing 70% a year on average through bear markets and bull markets. The, the Bitcoin network is secured, in my opinion, by four things. It's secured by electrical power, electricity, like 15 gigawatts of it. It's secured by hash power, computer power, 460 exahash. And that is all the computer power of the world. All the computers in the world that are not Bitcoin miners, if they all started hashing Bitcoin, I don't think they would reach 460 exahash. So, so it's a lot of computer power, but it's also secured by economic power. There's more than $500 billion that have been invested in the Bitcoin network, and the holders that have invested that money are going to defend the network politically and otherwise. Right, a company like MicroStrategies invested, you know, 4.6 or 4.7 billion dollars. You know, before someone screws up the network, you can imagine that all of our lawyers and all of our finance people and, and all of our technologists and all of our engineers are all going to be doing something about it. And we're just, we're not even one percent, right? There's a hundred x more than us out there, and those people feel strongly too. So. Economic power matters. And then finally, there's just pure political power. There's 220 million people that have Bitcoin exposure. And 220 million people is a lot of people, a lot of voters, and they all know politicians, and they all know corporations, and they're going to fight. So 
When you think about all of those, uh, those uh, actors and you know, they're all running nodes and they're all operating mining rigs and they're all talking and doing things, that's a lot of security and it's an n-dimensional, it's a multi-dimensional form of security, it's not just mining. But my, my views on mining is um, Bitcoin mining hash rate's gonna continue to expand. Uh, it's going to spread to the four corners of the earth. Um, every place someone has stranded energy, stranded capital, every place where they, uh, they want to plug in, they're going to look to Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin mining itself uh, is going to be the primary beneficiary of transaction fees. And long term, the security of the network is going to be driven not by the block rewards. I mean, they will be a primary factor probably till 2035 or so. But in 2035, 99% of the block rewards have been delivered. And the network sometime between now and then is going to transition to transaction fees that are going to be driven by demand, you know, uh, for that very scarce block space. And um, I think those fees will go, they will move into a growth mode and then a hyper growth mode. And, and when, um, when the transaction fees are growing faster than the hash rate, then Bitcoin mining is going to explode in profitability uh, and blossom everywhere in the world. So I think that when I, when I look at Bitcoin mining and I look at transactions, I, I really focus upon, you know, what are the transaction revenues rather the block, relative to the block reward? And that determines, um, uh, that determines how you make business decisions, right? So, you know, if, if I owned a hydroelectric dam, yeah, and I had a gigawatt of free power, then I would look at Bitcoin mining differently than if I had to pay for the energy at a certain price. And so I think that the industry is gonna be very dynamic. Uh, to be clear, if I had a billion dollars right now to invest, I would buy Bitcoin. Okay. I wouldn't buy I think you do. So. I wouldn't buy a building, I wouldn't buy an altcoin, I wouldn't buy a, a power company. I wouldn't buy land, I wouldn't buy real estate, I wouldn't buy a sports team, I wouldn't buy a Picasso painting. There's nothing on, on earth that I would buy uh, other than Bitcoin if I had that money. I think everything else is risky. And I, you know, I, 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 I don't say you can't make money in those other businesses, you can. Bernard Arnault makes money in a lot of businesses I don't understand, and so I respect them all. It's just I don't advocate or endorse any of them. I think that if, if you're the best in the world at something, you know it. You don't need me to tell you. And if you're the best in the world at something, you should go do that thing. You'll probably make money in it. Uh, yep. What I believe is if you're not the best in the world at something and you simply want to make an investment and forget about it for 100 years, you buy Bitcoin and just be very careful about, you know, how you, how you maintain the keys or how you custody it so you don't lose the keys and, and the like. And then the market will do the rest of the work for you. Well, look, that, that rolls in well to my, my next question, which is as someone who's invested some time in educating the public over many different platforms uh, about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general, you've had some challenges along the way that you've faced uh, in changing the perception. And how do you plan on continuing to do this and giving some advice to us as we, we try and do the same thing? I, I think that, you know, if you think about um, the future of Bitcoin, right, it, it's like one or two percent really understood. Uh, 
You know, a, a friend of mine is in politics, and he said, um, he said, you know, what we learned in politics a long time ago is nobody knows what you said until you said it 56 times. 56 times. <laughs> like, uh, like, you would say the same exact thing 56 different times, mm -hmm. and after the 56th time, someone, it might register in their head mm -hmm. what you just said, but they're not listening mm -hmm. until then. So, I believe that uh, people in the crypto industry are very smart, and, and when you're uh, very smart early in your career, you think that you should say it once or twice, and then you get bored of hearing yourself say it, and you go and you say something else. It's like everybody's got to say a hundred different things because they already they feel like they already solved the problem, so they want to do another thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important to have the humility to note most of the money in the world is control, and most of the power in the world is in the hands of people that still don't understand what Bitcoin is, and they're not going to get it until you've broached it to them dozens and dozens of times. So my approach to this is stay laser-like focused. That's why I have the laser eyes, <laughs> focus, right? And, and you've got you've to educate your investors, and you've got to educate your politicians, and you've got to educate your friends and your family, and you've got to you know, I, I look forward to the time when Apple Computer will build Bitcoin into the iOS, and when Google will build it into the Android phone, when Microsoft will build it in. But you know, if all these super high-tech people haven't figured it out and built it in yet, you gotta, you gotta allow for the governor of your state or the president or for you know, octogenarian billionaire investors, you gotta say that it's gonna take them a while to figure this stuff out. So we have a lot of auspicious things happening. We'll win them over. When the SEC approves these spot ETFs, that'll be a big educational experience. And then you'll have BlackRock and Fidelity and a hundred other Wall Street firms educating all of the investors that control $900 trillion. And that'll go on for 30 years. It'll take 30 years for them to figure it out. And then at some point, all the big tech companies will follow the lead of you know, Cash App and, and all of the forward-looking mobile apps and Lightning wallets, and, and it'll take them about a decade. And, uh, and then I think um, with things like FASB's uh, fair value accounting, right now the, the accounting for Bitcoin is indefinite and tangible, which makes it toxic to the balance sheet of a publicly traded company. Um, and so going to fair value accounting, which should happen sometime next year, will allow someone to buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin and mark it up and mark it down like they would own a security. That's kind of a critical next step because that opens the door for 7,000 publicly traded companies or, or hundreds of thousands of companies who use gap accounting to consider this. And right now, the CFO would get fired or the CEO would never consider it. And they will instead, like Berkshire Hathaway sits on $160 billion of cash. Apple has $150 billion in cash. They're losing money on the cash. But the only thing they can buy with the cash is sovereign debt right now because of accounting rules. And the sovereign debt yields 5% pre-tax and 3% after tax. So we're going to educate the world by by working, uh, working with the regulators to get the, all these financial products approved, that's part of it. By working with the accounting uh, community uh, to put in place better accounting standards, by working with financial educators and Wall Street firms, uh, by working with the politicians, 
by putting uh, monetary engineering classes into universities. We need to teach people crypto theory and monetary theory. And I, you know, I went to MIT, they didn't have a class in monetary theory, they didn't have a school of monetary engineering. And so I think that lots and lots of parts of our society need to get upgraded. It's gonna take time. Um, it'll, it'll probably be a transition over the course of 10, 20, 30 years. How long did it take to introduce electricity into the civilization? Or how long did it take to introduce the automobile, uh, you know, or, or introduce radio or, or telephone? So these things take time, one generation, and there's a lot of work everywhere. And as William Gibson said, the future's already with us, but it's not evenly distributed. So there'll be some countries that'll be left behind and other countries that'll leap ahead and some companies will leap ahead. But um, I, you know, I'm optimistic and I think everything is, is developing auspiciously, you know, and all we gotta do is just keep our laser eyes on and just, and, and, and everybody you meet and everywhere you go, you have to explain the promise of Bitcoin and help we need to show everybody, every person, every family, every company, every government, every institution, every, everybody, how Bitcoin can solve their problem, how it makes them better, right? Because Bitcoin fixes something for everybody. They just don't know what it is and they don't understand Bitcoin. So if we explain to everybody we meet how Bitcoin helps them, then we will accelerate the adoption at the highest possible rate and we do a good thing for ourselves and we do a good thing for them. So yeah. that's my view on this. And I think, there's um, never any work to do. Incredibly well said. And you talk there, you know, you're looking quite far into the future there when you say 20, 25, 30 years ahead. So I think as, as a final question to finish up, where do you see Bitcoin and the ecosystem, you know, in just four or five years' time as maybe we head out of this next market cycle? Yeah, well, I think over the next four years, what, the, the, the time period from 2020 to 2024 was the transition from this being a retail offshore unregulated asset to this being an institutionalized mainstream asset. And by the time we get to the end of 2024, I think that it will be uh, an adolescent mainstream asset. Um, so I think that uh, this next 12 months is gonna be a big, it's gonna be a very big 12 months because you have uh, demand should, double or triple or maybe go up by a factor of 10, anywhere from two to 10 uh, demand to buy on a monthly basis. And the supply available for sale will be cut in half in April. And so instead of a billion dollars of uh, Bitcoin available for miners each month, it'll be half a billion. And so it's pretty unprecedented that you would go from uh, supply demand balance of Maybe there's $15 billion of organic demand and $12 billion of organic supply. What happens when the one doubles, the other one cuts in half, and then the, you know, the price has got to adjust up? So I think this is a big 12-month period. Uh, it'll be a coming out party, right? It's kind of like the graduation of Bitcoin from college, if you will, and coming out into the real world. And then I think the next four years, from 2024 to 2028, now you're gonna have ferocious competition 
and among Wall Streeters to get, to get the most asset share, and you're gonna have crypto exchanges competing, and you're gonna have tech companies getting involved. I mean, uh, Cash App sold two and a half billion dollars of Bitcoin, uh, you know, a quarter or something like that, so 10 billion a year. At some point, you're gonna see all the other mobile tech companies, you know, the Facebooks, the Apples, the Googles, et cetera, think, why wouldn't we want to sell 10 or 20 or 50 billion dollars of Bitcoin a year? So I think 2024 to 2028, that's going to be really the go-go year. It's going to be very exciting. We're still in a high growth stage. I think, you know, we'll stay in a high growth stage until, you've, until big tech has adopted Bitcoin, you know, when there's two or three or four billion handsets with Bitcoin built into them. I, you know, that'll be one check. The other check will be when the big mega banks all are Bitcoin custodians, when JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and Bank of America and Deutsche Bank and, you know, every bank, Commonwealth Bank, when all of them say, it goes without saying that, of course, they've got to actually custody Bitcoin and make loans against it. When they're, when they're making loans and giving you mortgages and custodying it and buying it and selling it, I think that'll be the second check Right, and then the third check is when the entire money management community, right, all the money managers, all the wealth managers, when all of them are recommending Bitcoin to their clients, and it's just a universal global monetary index, right? And, and I think that those three things are going to drive massive adoption. And when they've all happened, then we'll move into the, you know, to the, uh, to the moderate growth stage. It'll still be growing well, but it won't be explosive growth because all the, I guess the last thing I left off would be when countries, when uh, central banks of nation states are buying Bitcoin, right? That's the fourth leg of this. When all those four things have happened, it's just gonna grow twice as fast as everything else, right? But until that's happened, it's going to be uh, a lot of sparks, a lot of fire, a lot of excitement, a lot of green candle days, a lot of FUD, a lot of arguments, you know, a lot of gnashing of teeth, and then and it's going to grow two, three, four, five X faster than the next best thing, I think. With volatility, right? With sharp drawdowns, with burst up to the upside. And if you're gonna take a four-year time horizon or longer, you'll be fine. If you try to trade it, with a four month time horizon or four week time horizon, you're gonna give yourself anxiety and nervous fits and probably you'll wreck yourself. So my advice is uh, enjoy the ride, figure out how you can contribute to the Bitcoin ecosystem using whatever skills, relationships and know-how you have and assets you have and, um, and, and keep your eyes on the horizon, you know? I mean, there's a better world here for all of us and we've never had such a great opportunity. So take the long view and, uh, and enjoy the ride. Incredibly wise words from uh, Michael there. So we'll finish it up there. Thank you so much for being with us for the second year in a row. It's a packed house here. I know you, you can't really see it. But again, thank you for being with us and giving us your time very graciously. Uh, look, you're very revered and admired here, not just in the crypto community, but the TradFi community as well. So hopefully uh, one day we'll see you maybe down here in real life, hopefully. Um, it's a wonderful spot, so please put your hands together and thank Michael for being with us today.
Well, thanks, Tracy, and thank you to everybody here today. Thanks for hosting me. I'm sorry I can't be there, but I love Sydney, I love Melbourne, I look forward to being in your beautiful country uh, sometime soon. And uh, thank you for your support for Bitcoin, and, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks again, Michael. So there you have it, Michael Saylor speaking to a captivated audience at the Melbourne Oz Crypto Con event. What were your two standouts there or comments that you'd like to give there, Blake, from Michael Saylor? Yeah, every time I listen to that, Trace, I just realise that I don't have enough Bitcoin. <laughs> and I'm thinking about ways about how I can acquire more. Um, but apart from that, I think it was really interesting um, how Michael talks about you know, his MicroStrategy um, being basically an essentially a, a leveraged ETF without fees. I think that's that's mm. really fascinating. It gives people great options in the market, as well as that, you know, Bitcoin is property. I've never really looked at it in the way that um, Michael explains it, and um, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. That Bitcoin property one for me was certainly interesting, and you're right. I think everyone walked away wanting to buy more Bitcoin for sure, and I think he definitely was the talk of the convention, and again, Dave Haslop and his team have done such an, an amazing job securing him two years in a row, and we're all hoping that he can join us out here in real life next time, Blake. Mm, that's it. Speaking of next year, the event will be moved to Sydney and tickets are on sale now um, for a very early bird discount and we'll leave the link in the show notes below um, so don't miss out grab your ticket uh, and be first in line uh, for that one. Yep, absolutely. So thanks again to Dave and his entire team for putting on such an amazing event for our entire crypto community. And again, for me personally, giving me the opportunity to interview Michael, you know, I had a ball. It was amazing. So that is the end of our show for this week, folks. Don't forget, if you are interested in DCAing into crypto, like many of us will be after that amazing interview, please have a look at the Bamboo app. Use the code CURIOUS for $10 of free Bitcoin to get you started. Links in the show notes below. Please follow the Crypto Curious social media Instagram page or the Facebook group. Hit the subscribe button where you're listening to us now to make sure you get the podcast each week and tell your mates about the show also. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week. Bye for now. See you guys. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.